As we continue with our worship this morning by turning to page five in our worship journals, which is our notes page today, uh, we continue as well with this study uh, that we started back at the beginning of Advent, so several weeks ago, that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you've been with us at all in this study, then you know that at the beginning of this study, we're spending time at the very beginning of the Bible, looking at the beginning of all things. And as it turns out today, not just at the beginning of all things, but today we will see how it is that Almighty God, already once in history, brought all things to a complete and total end. And I say that because today we're going to be looking at the story of Noah. But let me describe the story of Noah, the flood of Noah, a little bit differently for you because I want to be brutally honest about this story. I want to categorize it or contextualize it for you in a way that helps you enter into it as it really is. Today we come to the story of how Almighty God, who having created all things and then watched all things rebel against Him, brought through a literal flood of His judgment the entire world of Noah the exception of Noah and his family, to an end. So what that means is that unless we decide to just skip this story, we're forced really by this story to deal with the extremely uncomfortable and yet inescapable reality that Almighty God does in fact do what every single one of us here today knows deep down in our hearts that Almighty God must in fact do. And what is that? That God in the end must bring judgment. And the idea for us today is not just to the world of Noah, but to our world too. And you say, well, why is that? Because our world is just like the world of Noah. Read the stories. Make the comparisons. Just like the world of Noah was full of corruption. Yeah, okay. That fits, doesn't it? All right, the world of Noah, full of greed. I think we've got a little of that. More than our share, wouldn't you? Oppression, yeah, we have that. Okay, suffering, we have that. Okay, sickness, yeah, we've got that. Injustice, all right, yeah, we have that in spades. Massacres, yeah, we have that. Holocaust, we've got that. Wars and strife and all kinds of stuff. Got it, got it. I mean, it just goes right down the list. And it calls forth from the same God who does not change the same reaction, does it not? Because think about this with me for a minute. How could God really be holy? How could God really be righteous? How could God really be just? Or to put it differently, how could God in fact be God and not, first of all, bring all of that crud, and that's the mildest word I could come up with, to an end? And isn't that, by the way, what all of us want Him to do? We do, don't we? It's like latent within us, you know, sons and daughters of Adam, is this memory of the garden, of a place with no war, of a place with no armies, of a place with no police departments, of a place, guys, with no hospitals and no cemeteries. And we, in a sense, know that we were made for it, we long for it, we desire for that, we want that so desperately. And I, for one, would like to start with hospitals, I'm not going to lie. Hospitals are a part of my job. I go to hospitals. I went to visit a dear friend of mine who's a member of this congregation who is dying right now of cancer twice this week, Wednesday night with Beth and then Thursday night with a number of elders from our church. And it's funny when I walked in, not funny, haha, but just funny the recollection that I have when I walk into a hospital. Because here's what happens to me now. I've been doing this long enough where when I go to a hospital, I remember the people that I visited in that hospital who now I then visit at a cemetery. 
So we walk into Imperial Point Medical Center, and immediately I see the chapel that's right next to the elevators, and I'm flashed back like 12, 14, 15, 16 years probably to when I went in that chapel, and I sat there and prayed with a man and his wife who was dying. Every hospital, I can just name names. This person, this person, this person, this person. And I'm going to tell you plainly that if we get to the end of all things and God does not bring that to an end, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Aren't you? We know it's supposed to be better, different. No hospitals. No cemeteries. And so then how can God be God guys, and not, in the end, to bring all of that to an end. And how can God be God? How can He be holy? How can He be just? How can He be righteous? And not, in the end, also. This is hugely important. Hold every evildoer accountable for every evil thing. And we want that too. We decry injustice. We can't believe it when so-and-so gets away with it. They get away with it. They get away with it. They don't get away with it if there is a holy God. Not if He's just. Okay, how can he do that? He can't. So then, bottom line, God must, in the end, he must, in the end, in our world as in Noah's, bring judgment. We see an example of that in the story of Noah. But here's what else we see. We see that a God also delivers from judgment. And here's why that's good news. And at first, you're going to resist this, but just hang with me for a minute, okay? Don't put your defenses up. Just hear me out and then see if you agree. The reality is that all of us are evildoers. And here's why we have a problem with that, because we look at other evildoers and we go, well, I'm not like them, and you're not. So we're not ISIS, we're not Boko Haram, we're not the hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of people who by magnitudes of order are far more evil and wicked than we are. And therefore, as a result, we look at them and go, yeah, so no, see, I'm a good person. Okay, now hang on a second. I'll use myself as an example. The thought of having to stand before, in the end, Almighty God, who is altogether holy, who is altogether perfect, who is altogether righteous, who is altogether just, who is himself the very definition of good. That's good. And then to have to give an account to him for every one of my thoughts, every one of my words, every one of my motivations, every one of my incentives, every reason that I ever did anything or didn't do certain things, actions, inactions, the whole of it from conception to death, including college, is terrifying to me. (laughs) It is absolutely terrifying to me. Why? Because God is perfectly just and he must, in the end, bring judgment upon everything, great and small. No one's left out. You're like, I don't like the word evil. All right, well, just substitute selfish. Good with that? Does that fit? How about prideful? How about materialistic? All of a sudden, we find that the shoe fits. So look, we need to know today that, listen, God must, in the end, bring judgment. But guys, God delivers from judgment. And here's how he does it. I'm going to give you an image He does it through the door, that's the image, who is Jesus. So here's what I want to do as we enter into this story that I'm mostly going to tell you today. But as we enter into this story, here's what I want you to be looking for. First of all, I want you to be looking for the door. And then secondly, I want you to be looking at yourself and asking this question. Okay, since I too live in a world that just like the world of Noah will in fact one day end in judgment, how should I live? How should we as a family live? How should we as a church live? And I'm going to give you the answer generally. The specifics you can work out with the Lord himself. We should live like Noah. Guys, Noah is the man. 
Jesus is in a category by himself, so let's put him there, but then let's gather up every biblical character that you can think of and put them over in another category, and now we try to categorize them, and you just tell me how Noah doesn't have a very strong argument for number one. He is astonishingly awesome. This is how to live in a world that's destined for judgment. This is how to do that by faith. So with all that in mind, we pick up our study today in Genesis 7, beginning in verse 1, where Moses says this. He says, then the Lord said to who? Because here he is. Here's our guy. Here's our model. This is the one that we're looking at. Okay. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. That is to say, go into the great big wooden ship that by this point in the narrative, Noah and his sons have by faith built and by which God will deliver them from destruction, from death from judgment. So the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all of your household, he says, for I have what? And I think this is a really significant word. I have seen, says God. Now, what does that tell us? Tells us that God sees. You know, back three, four, five weeks ago, when we talked about the story of the creation of men, we saw that we were created in God's image. And what I didn't tell you, but what I'll share with you now, is that even physically, the way that God has created us speaks to who He is. In other words, He gave us certain capabilities and capacities so that we might know about Him. So, for example, He gave us feet, not just so that we can move around, but so that we can know that He's a God who moves. He gave us hands, not just so that we can work, but actually for the primary purpose of revealing to us that He's a God who works. We're made in His image, ears that we might know He hears, mouths that we might know He speaks, eyes, not just so that we can see, but so that we might know that He is a God who sees. And what does He see here? He sees everything, but what does He point out? He says, I have seen that you, Noah, alone in all the earth is the point. And by faith, as the product of the fact that you're the only man of faith left, are righteous, which tells us something also about righteousness, and that is to say that it is visible. And it's visible to Almighty God, who when He sees righteousness, because He sees all things perfectly, knows that that's in fact what it is. But but it's visible to man too. And man does not see all things perfectly. And so here's what often happens, and I think Noah is the single greatest biblical example of this. Man oftentimes looks at what God sees and recognizes, in fact, accurately to be righteousness, and man confuses it with madness, utter madness, good grief. That is absolutely crazy. So Noah is the only righteous man, the only man of faith left in the world. God declares that. That's how God sees it. All right, just so you know, to everyone else in the world that he inhabited, Noah was the biggest, I'm just going to say it, idiot on the planet. Flat out the village idiot. Absolutely no question about that. And I want you to consider why he was the village idiot. He was the village idiot because he claimed to have the word of God. A. B, he claimed that the Word of God said that a day was actually coming in which God would hold accountable fully every evildoer for every evil thing. C, he claimed the Word of God said that we're all evildoers. D, therefore, repent, turn from your wicked ways, and get on this huge ship that I built in my backyard, because by it you will escape the inevitably coming flood of the judgment of Almighty God. Get on it while there's still time. 
All right, I'm just going to say plainly, that's my message this morning, and that's your message, not just today, but every day. That's our message to our kids, to our spouses, to our friends, to the people that we work with, to the people that we go to school with, to the people we hang out with. That's our message to the city, to the state, to the country, and to the world. We claim in the Bible to have the Word of God. We claim that it says that a day of reckoning will actually come. God must, in the end, bring judgment, and in fact, He will and hold every evildoer accountable for every evil deed. And, oh man, I know this is hard to stomach, but guess what? We are all of us. We don't exempt ourselves from this. We get this. We are all of us evildoers. You don't like evil? Great. Substitute selfish. Substitute prideful. At some point, you're going, yeah, all right, I'm in the line. You know, I'm with you. Therefore, what? Repent and bring your sin and yourself to Jesus and surrender yourself to Him. Give it all to the one who alone can rescue you, for He is the door. (laughs) And we're getting to the door. And do it while you still have time. And you say, you know what, Tom? Nobody talks like that anymore. I mean, like, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but nobody talks like that anymore. I, I know that nobody's kind of a big word. There are a few crazy people who talk like this still. But I'm aware of that. Nobody preaches from Genesis 7 anymore either, for the most part. Really? When was the last time you heard a sermon on the flood of Noah? The end of the world. It's been a while, I'm guessing. All anybody, and that's again a sweeping generalization, but it's how it feels to me at times. All anybody, at least this is the way it feels to me, seems to want to talk about or to hear about anymore is how to be healthy in bodies that will inevitably die. The mortality rate is 100%. Check it. And how to be wealthy in a world and build our own little kingdoms in a world that is destined for destruction. And even if it doesn't get destroyed in our lifetime, we leave it all behind anyway. And it's of no value to us in the eternity that we enter into on the other side of this little blip on the radar called whatever how many years we have in this life. That's it. It's very myopic. Nobody wants to hear about heaven or hell or judgment or the end of the world. That is utter madness, unless it's true, in which case it's righteousness. But boy, it looks crazy. But it is righteousness if it's true. And if it is true, then we need to find safety behind the door who is Jesus. And we're getting to that. And I'll tell you what else we need to do. Having found safety behind the door who is Jesus, we need to learn to live like Noah, who so fervently believed this message, guys, that now imagine this. Before an entire world of watching people, this guy started cutting down trees with his three boys. And I'm not talking about a couple of trees. He didn't come into the bunk room of his boys one Saturday morning early, you know, and wake him up and say, all right, boys, I got breakfast ready for you, and I've sharpened the saws because we have six trees in the backyard that we've got to take down by lunch, and then we're going to start fashioning. Oh, no, no, no. Noah had, I think, to be a fabulously wealthy man to do this because this was a much bigger than a four-person job. They cleared a forest of trees. Then they transported all of these trees to their incredibly sizable estate, apparently, where they milled them all into boards of various kinds and sizes and so forth according to incredible various specifications that they had. And then, then in the backyard, which was located in the plains of Mesopotamia where there was probably not so much as a lake around, they fashioned the world's first cruise ship. This is not a canoe. 
It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It has three levels inside of it with all kinds of rooms and stuff for the animals that God is going to bring to Noah. And then he took whatever he had left, liquidated it, purchased all kinds of food and provisions, put it all in there, waiting for the animals, and all the while saying to everybody, guys, get on the boat, get on the boat. Come on, it's coming, get on the boat. This man was nuts. Or was he nuts? Well, when the flood came, he was a genius, but at that point, his genius was of no use to anyone but his family, who I want to say did not abandon him. That's pretty powerful. It could not have been easy to be a son of Noah or his wife. There's the wife of that crazy guy. Can you imagine? Hard enough being a pastor's wife. I can't even imagine. Guys, righteousness is visible, and it is visible to God who sees it for what it is. But it's visible to other people, too, who often mistake it for madness. Does anyone ever mistake anything in your life for madness? Ever? Do they? I feel like at least every once in a while, somebody ought to think we're a little bit off. Like every once in a while, somebody who knows, maybe a business partner, maybe a non-Christian financial advisor, who knows what you do with your money, ought to say to you, hey, man... Really? Well, you could actually use that. What are you doing? So wait a minute. Explain to me how much time you spend as a, you don't get paid for this, right? Like this is a volunteer thing. Like you just, you just kind of do this. So how much time do you spend working with those people doing that Jesus thing? What, what? That's nuts. You have three kids already and now you're going to take in a foster kid. Why? You don't have enough to do? Is that the problem? That could introduce all kinds of problems into your house. That's the stuff of crazy people. Okay, so you've been working for 10 years to get this career advancement opportunity, but when it came, it came in another city. And so you and your husband or wife, you know, like laid that opportunity before the Lord. And you feel like what he's saying to you is, hey, you know what? This is a better place for your family to grow spiritually. And you've got great mission and and, and ministry and and stuff like that. There are other worldly things that are actually more important than this. And so just so that I got it right, like you've been chasing this bus for 10 years and now you've caught it and now you're going to let it go. You should have your head examined. How about the sexual ethic of Scripture? I throw that one out, like, because if I haven't hooked you yet, this is it. This is the net that grabs us all. Here is the sexual ethic of the Bible. You ready? It's short. It's easy. It's very simple to remember. Sex is for married people. That's it. That's the whole ethic right there in a nutshell. Sex is for married people. Okay, so, so what you're saying is then, you know, you're going to wait till you get married. I got that. I, I don't, anyway. Um, what if uh, you don't get married till you're 25? What if you don't get married till you're 35? Okay, here's the kicker. What if you never get married? That is madness, isn't it? That's inconceivable. We don't have a category for that. It's like, God, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. What is wrong with you? It's not, it's righteousness. 
It's the fruit of faith. It's the kind of light that a very dark world needs to see. They need to know that there is a Savior who is worth more to us and more worthy of our worship than sex and sexuality or than money, or than time, or than our schedule, or than career advancement opportunities. And hey, listen, as I go through all of those examples, all of us, because we're people, immediately start going through the list and and, and begin to recite all of our failures in every single one of these areas. And I'll be honest, particularly the last one. But that's the gospel. There's deliverance, you see, from judgment. That's where the whole Jesus heart enters into each one of our stories. So anyway, we read again, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you alone is the point, are righteous. You're the only faithful man left before me in this generation. And so then Noah gets on the boat and his family gets on the boat and then, and then comes the parade. Here come the animals two by two. You're like, was it all of the animals? Was it every species of animal? I don't know. I, you know, I'm just like, like I was there. Good grief. How old do you think I am? You know, I, there's no videotape of this. You're like, Tom, do you actually believe this stuff? Because this is crazy. This is another reason nobody talks about this. It just sounds a little much, doesn't it? I mean, it strains credulity. I do, and I'll tell you why. And it's very simple. I'm very simple about certain things. I find that it's helpful. I recommend it. God's Word speaks of it factually. And Jesus, who is God, speaks of it factually. So Jesus, who is God, he enters into our humanity through a supernatural conception. He becomes one of us. (laughs) That Jesus who lived, who suffered, who died, and who on the third day actually did rise from the dead as he said that he would. All right, if he's going with the Noah story, I'm in. That's it. That's all I need to do. I don't know if it was every species of animal. I don't know if it was the big elephants that came or babies. I don't know if all the birds came actually as birds or eggs. I I don't have any of those. There's all kinds of theories, and, and you can read about them if you'd like. I just know that it happened. So I go with that. So Noah gets on the ark, his family gets on the ark, the animals, and that had to be a Kodak moment right there. I mean, you know, I mean, the news cameras were rolling and they're going, well, I guess he was right about the animals. The animals get on the ark and then what happens? You know what happens? And you say, I do know what happens because I was here last Sunday and I got one of these worship journals and I came in and I listened to Matt's excellent sermon and I took notes on page five. And then I brought this home with me and I opened it up on Monday morning to page seven and it said that Somebody, I I guess that's you, Tom, was going to be preaching on Genesis chapter 7. And so then in accordance with the rhythm of grace, I worked it through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then last night, as I'm instructed to do, I prepared my heart for worship. I know exactly what happens in this story. I've been through it five times. And here's what happens. The flood comes. Close, but not quite. Noah gets on the ark. His family gets on the ark. The animals get on the ark. And then God shuts the door to the ark, the only door to the ark. There's always just one door, incidentally. And then the flood comes. And everyone outside of the door to the ark suffers destruction and death in the judgment of God. And everyone inside of the door of the ark experiences deliverance and life. 
and is transported above the waters of the flood of God's judgment to another world, as we'll see next week. So what's the message? Well, there is destruction and death, and there is deliverance and life. And the difference, the difference is the door. And not just in this story, but all over the Old Testament. So you fast forward a little bit. You get to the story of Sodom, that wicked city that God has purposed to destroy, but has exactly one righteous citizen in it. His name is Lot. He's the nephew of Abraham. So God sends in these two messengers, these two angelic visitors who come looking like men. You're like, can you explain that to me? No, I actually, I can't. I just, I just know that it happened. I don't have it on videotape either. And so they come into the city and Lot meets them at the gate. He brings them into his home and he shows the Middle Eastern hospitality, which speaks of his righteousness and of his faith. But in that night, the men of Sodom come. And they surround the house of Lot. You know the story, do you not? They have come to sodomize. Literally, it's where we get the word, these guests. And Lot goes out to plead with them and says, no, 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 please, I beg of you, don't don't do this. And they subject him to violence. And these angelic guests open the door and they grab Lot and they pull him in and they shut the door. There's only one, incidentally, and they strike the crowd with temporary blindness, apparently, and then they all wander off. And the next morning, Lot and his family, that is to say, everyone behind that door, escape the city while God brings judgment on the rest of it, message being what? Destruction and death, deliverance and life. The difference is the door. We see it again with the people of Israel and Egypt that God has purposed to destroy. He brings plague upon plague, ten plagues that are specifically designed to refute the Egyptian deities, to show that he has mastery over them. The last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn, and God comes and says, look, this is what's going to happen, so here's what you need to do. You need to kill a spotless, innocent lamb. You need to take its blood and paint the doorposts and the lintels of your home, and then you need to get behind that bloody door of your home. Everybody behind the door, saved. Destruction and death for the Egyptians. Deliverance and life for God's people. Last example, story of Rahab. Joshua leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River, right above the Dead Sea, about five miles or so from ancient Jericho, the city that God has purposed to destroy. He's declared it as much. But there's one righteous citizen. My goodness, this sounds familiar. I think I've heard this before. And they make a deal with her. Hey, you know what? Here's the thing. You need to gather your family together. You need to stay behind. It's very specific. The door of your home, the singular door. Because everybody outside the door, destruction and death, everybody inside the door will experience deliverance and life. And that's what happens. There's destruction and death and deliverance and life, and the difference is the door. And you say, well, that's great, but I don't understand how that's Jesus. Because you keep saying, all right, you know, Jesus is the door. How did that come to be? I mean, where did you get that? I got it from the mouth of Christ himself. Here is the Son of God standing on planet Earth. And in John chapter 10, he reaches back into the Old Testament and he gathers up all those stories. And he says, do you see these stories? Do you understand these stories? Do you see how this works? Okay, here's the thing. I am the door. It's who I am what I do. Or to say it differently, I am the son of the living God who in righteous obedience to my father who loved you so much, and I do too, 
through that supernatural conception, clothed myself in your humanity, and entered into this world. And here's then what I did. I lived the only holy. I lived the only truly righteous. I lived the only truly just. I lived the only good as God life ever lived by a human being. And then I suffered and died on a Roman cross, bearing in my body, mind, and soul the full weight of the judgment of Almighty God for every one of your errant, how about that, thoughts, words, deeds, motives, inactions, all of it past, present, and future. So that by simply accepting my perfect and infinitely valuable sacrifice on your behalf, okay, here's what you get, and it's not destruction and death. You get deliverance, and you get life. And you say, man, that is crazy. No, 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 that's grace. And it is a grace that calls us to accept that sacrifice as the full and only payment for our sin. And it's a grace that calls us to then, having found safety behind the door, who is Jesus? Deliverance, life is what we get. All right, well, then it calls us to learn how to live like Noah. To learn how to live today as those who believe that the world in which we live today will one day end in judgment, but also as those who believe that there's deliverance from that judgment and the deliverance has a name and his name is Christ. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you straight out, have you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus' perfect life, Son of God, Son of Man, as the sole and only payment He's the only one who can do this for your, I'm going to say it, evil deeds. And if you have, then are you as an individual living like Noah right now in this world? In other words, as you look at your life and honestly survey it, are you living for this world or are you living for the next world? Are you worried about building your kingdom here in a world that will perish? Or are you worried about the world to come and making sure that as many people as you can take with you? (laughs) Well, then you take with you. Secondly, is your family living like Noah in this world right now? In other words, is there anything about your family that your neighbors think is a little off? Even if they don't say it, you just kind of know because they kind of look at you like, oh, here comes the crazy people. Is that the case? Or do you fit right in? Think about that. And then what about us as a church? Are we living like Noah in this world right now? And I'll tell you, we're we're trying by God's grace. We do it imperfectly, that's for sure, for we have imperfect leaders who are very much in touch with that. But by God's grace, we are trying. And I, I will tell you as well that I think that this year, and this isn't hyperbole, okay? I think this is a pivotal year for us. I think that in the long history of our church, and I think we've been around since 1941, In the long history of our church, I think this is one of the most significant years that this church has seen. And here's why I'm saying that. Little teaser, because three weeks from now on January 31, we're going to roll out for you guys the vision that we have been thinking about and praying about and working behind the scenes and talking with a lot of you about that we really believe that God has given to us as a church. Who would God have Rio Vista Community Church for the sake of living like Noah, that is to say, for the sake of the kingdom, be. 
Who would he have us be? And not just in our generation, but even after us. Who would he have us be beyond our leadership and our attendance here, but under the leadership of other people who are younger than we are, who we train up and hand it all over to? Who would he have us be and what will it take for us to become that? So that's what we'll talk about in three weeks. But between now and then, have you brought your sin and self to Jesus and accepted his willing sacrifice of his infinitely valuable and infinitely righteous life as the only payment that can satisfy Almighty God and received his deliverance in life that you might, like my friend that I visited in the hospital, know when the end comes for you, you can be at peace. Here's what she said. She said, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, but she said, I'm actually excited to go to heaven. There you go. Is that you? Because it can be. Secondly, if that is you, all right, are you living like Noah as an individual, as a family? And if not, then okay, what would the Lord have you change? What would he have you do? What does it look like for you to make some changes so that you might do that? And then lastly, be here on January 31 and pray about it in advance, if you would. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that though, God, in truth, as painful as it is to admit, what we really deserve is not your blessing, but your judgment. You have for your own glory and for the benefit of all those who come to Christ at your expense, pay the price that we owe you for every errant thought, every errant word, every errant deed, every errant inaction, every errant motivation from conception to death, and yes, including college. You've done that. Lord, let us see that Savior. Give us hearts of faith to believe. And let us know that for all of eternity, here will be our experience. It will be deliverance and life. When the day comes, it will not be a day of terror, but joy. It will be the day that we're all longing for, where everything is made right and there are no hospitals. So work that work of faith in our hearts, Lord, and teach us what it looks like to live today as individuals and families and as a church as though we're living in a world that, like the world of Noah, calls forth the exact same response from you. For indeed, Lord, we are. And give us the grace and the faith by which to then live righteously before you, as Noah did. Do these things for your glory, for the good of this, your people, and for the good of the world that you seek to save. In Jesus' name, amen.